baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley and Nick Green. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, joined as always by Nick Green as we spend a few minutes, or maybe more than a few minutes, taking a jaunt through Major League Baseball and, of course, talking about all the things happening for the Atlanta Braves and what was an eventful, albeit disappointing, homestand for the Braves, who finished up just 2-5 and five despite splitting a series against the Mets, ran into some serious trouble against the Diamondbacks, and some of the reasons why they were in so much trouble are things we are going to discuss on this episode of From the Diamond. Before we get into all that, though, I want to welcome in Nick Green. We had a chance to spend a week at the ballpark, Nick. There were some things to be excited about, and then some things that were a little bit less than exciting happening for the Atlanta Braves over at SunTrust Park this week. Well, it's still early, and that's a good thing. Uh, they have time to turn things around. They're 9-9, nine and nine, 500, and you can... <laughs> You could say they could easily be 11 and 7 tied for first place in the division. Yeah. And I think they should be. Uh, but it, it's still early. So no need to panic right now. And we're happy to see baseball being played. But when you see these things crop up, you want them to crop up early so you can make those adjustments and, and fix the things that need to be fixed. No two ways about it. Not quite time to hit the panic button yet. As Nick mentioned, the Braves are a 500 ball club. But it is time for you to click that subscribe button over on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher and keep up with every episode of From the Diamond. You can leave us a rating and a review. We appreciate all of those. And on social media, you can find us on Twitter at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, and Nick is at NickGreen20. Over at FromTheDiamond.com, you can find all the articles and, of course, every episode of the podcast as well. So plenty of options for you to keep up with everything happening from the diamond. But, uh, Nick, you, I think, laid it out right there where you look at this record and you feel like there is certainly room for improvement in terms of a couple of games that got away specifically in this Arizona series. You got great starting pitching for the most part. I really, you definitely did on the homestand overall, I'd say for the most part, but certainly during that diamondback series, you have to feel really good about that, but you don't feel as good when the bullpen door opens time and time again, and guys aren't able to get the outs you need to turn these great starting pitching performances and, whatever offense you got on that night into victories. And obviously it takes all the components of the team clicking to win these games. We saw the offense kind of hit the skids the last couple of games that ratchets up the pressure, I think on both the rotation and of course on the bullpen to get those outs and uh, help your club turn a good day at the ballpark into a winning day at the ballpark. But let's start, I guess, with the starting pitching, because I think that's something that we talked about in the first couple of episodes, the first couple of weeks of the season, needing to see more out of these guys. And I think we are seeing a lot more out of each and every one of them. Julio Tehran has looked much better. Max Freed has been absolutely terrific. What do you think is making Max Freed so effective right now? Because whatever he's done, whatever he's adjusted, and whatever he's found, it looks like he's carved out a spot in this rotation for sure. I think one of the, the things is just the fact that he's not afraid. He's been there. Uh, he's worked through some troubles at times uh, last year and now. He knows what he needs to do to, to get things right. 
and he has confidence. He has stuff. His velocity was down a little bit last time out, but that's okay because he still knows what he needs to do to be successful with his other pitches. So I just like the fact that he's being aggressive. He's attacking the zone. And when I talk about attacking the zone, and we'll talk about Sean Newcomb in a minute, but when you attack the zone, you want to throw strikes, but you want to throw quality strikes. Yes. And that's where Max is sitting right now. He's throwing quality strikes. He's working both sides of the plate. He's elevating when he has to elevate late in account. His curveball is nasty. He has trust in his changeup and slider, too. And I think that's going to be uh, going down the road. Those two pitches are going to be huge for him. And the more he gains confidence in those two, the better he's going to be. But he's just so confident on the mound. He's attacking and basically saying, you hit my best stuff. But when you look at his demeanor and face out there, it's like there's no worry in the world. He's going to go execute his pitch, and that's it. That's the bottom line. And I love the fact that he's going pitch to pitch. He's attacking the zone, but attacking them uh, the zone with quality strikes too. And he's a baby-faced kid. I mean, you wouldn't think that he's one of the oldest of these Braves pitching prospects that we've talked so much about. I mean, he's 25 years old, certainly not old by any stretch of the imagination, but also not, say, Mike Soroka, who's, what, 21 years old. And we'll talk about him a little bit more. But I guess just the uh, – maybe it was time for Max Fried to just, you know, grab that brass ring, if you will, and take that next step. Because if he didn't, you just really weren't sure how many more shots in rotation I think that – you know, anybody's going to be guaranteed, but he's certainly making the most of his. He started the year in the bullpen, may not have been exactly where he wanted to be, but it didn't take very long for opportunity to knock, and he has certainly taken the baton and ran with it. Another great performance for Max Fried. He's in the top five in Major League Baseball and earned run average. He's second in the National League. He's under one. Finally gave up a couple of runs to the Diamondbacks a few nights ago, and really, Ender Inciarte came very close to making what would have been a run-saving diving catch and Max Fried might still be sitting there with a zero ERA. He's been that good both in the numbers and when you look at the, the statistics and also when you watch him pitch. Nick, you talked about the attacking style. That's nothing but a good thing for a young pitcher to realize, let me make these guys hit my best stuff. Let me execute my game plan. There's a lot of, I think, guys that might get a little bit more timid and guys that don't really go right after you, maybe guys that overthink it a little bit and kind of overcook everything and end up getting into these deep counts and getting into a lot of trouble. And that's something that, you know, we've seen a lot, I think, with Sean Newcomb, who, again, we will talk about very shortly. Before we get to Sean, though, Kevin Gosman's another guy that you had to be thrilled with what you saw from him last time out. Great season debut. Second start, not as good. Third start, though, maybe one of the best of his career. Seven innings of two-run ball and ten strikeouts for Kevin Gosman. Fastball velocity, Nick. You had to like what you saw right there because Kevin Gosman looked like he was really primed to be a, a very important piece of this rotation and to pick up where he left off in 2018 for the Braves as well. Well, I was excited to see his fastball velocity too, just for the fact that he was hurt with a shoulder injury in spring training, and you never know how you're going to bounce back from that. And his velocity's up. His velocity was down a little bit last year from the previous year. Uh, this last start, velocity was up. And the reports were before he got activated, he was sitting 95, which was great because that was still an improvement uh, as far as average fastball velocity from the, from last year. So yeah. he looks like he's healthy. He's attacking the zone. Um, and he's working up in the zone really well this year too. And I, I think when I talk about working up in the zone, guys are trying to work up in the zone consistently all, all throughout Major League Baseball. But you've got to get to the top of the zone to make it work. And if you can't get to the top, then you have those mistakes where they're home runs. 
because it's right in the wheelhouse of hitters. And we talked about this on our show one time uh, over the past week about the opposite field power in SunTrust Park. Yeah, It's not necessarily because of the park. The park's a little bit short in right center, but if you look at the pitches, the guys are trying to go up in the zone and they're not, they're not being successful. They're not executing that pitch up in the zone. And Kevin Gosman has been able to do that. His splitter and changeup have been really good too. Uh, and, and they have good depth on them. He gave up the home run to Adam Jones last time out on a changeup first pitch, but that's going to happen from time to time. I still love him throwing that pitch to righties. Uh, and he just been, he's just been executing his pitches. He looks great. He's been efficient. 99 pitches and seven innings last time out. Mm-hmm. He's not walking guys. Uh, he's punching guys out, keeping the ball on the ground. There's a lot of good things to like about Gosman through his first three starts. No, most certainly. And I think that the strikeout column is something that a guy with that kind of stuff, you always think, man, he should be you know, striking out at least a batter per inning. And that was always something that I think was, if Kevin Gosman was going to take that next step, I'm sure the Orioles sat there for quite a while since he was a first-round pick who made it to the big leagues pretty quickly. Keep thinking that he's going to you know, really – take that next step and become that power pitcher, that strikeout pitcher. And he's shown that through the first few starts for the Braves. Now, can he sustain that? Certainly is the question, but you had to like what you saw as far as indicators are concerned, Nick, with both the velocity and the way that he was pitching. A lot of people talk about changing the eye level of the hitter. And for some folks, they may know exactly what that means. For some folks, they may not. As a former hitter, what do you feel like is the key to doing that? And is that something that is making Kevin Gosman so effective with his fastball up, and the splitter that can work down in the zone. Well, you've got to have either high spin rate or high velocity to make it work. For one, Gosman, he wants to. He actually mentioned that he wants to uh, change eye levels with guys and elevate that fastball, four seam fastball, and then throw the split off the same tunnel. So mm-hmm. basically, if you don't throw pitches off the same tunnel, you have something that pops up in the air. Um, it, it doesn't. It's not as successful because this, if I'm a hitter and I see a curveball pop up in the air, I immediately know it's a curveball. If I throw a fastball and a split off the same tunnel or a fastball and slider or whatever it may be out of that same slot in that same tunnel, now I don't know what's what. If I have good spin rate, the ball actually feels like it rises, which it really doesn't. It just stays you know, on, the, on that plane. And now I can't tell. I don't have time to think about what pitch this is, especially with that splitter. And then the ball drops off the table or the ball elevates. You know who's good at that is Blake Trinan. Mm-hmm. Blake Trinan will elevate with 98, and he'll throw a sinker off the same slot at 98. And he'll throw a cutter at 95 off the same slot. It's just changing that eye level back and forth because you don't know where to look. You see an elevated pitch, and you think it might be an off-speed pitch. And by the time you figure out which pitch it is, it's by you. And Gosman is more on uh, up and down versus side to side. He, he will obviously go side to side and work inside against righties and uh, work the outside corner to them as well. But he wants to go up and down because that's where his mix is. His fastball, splitter, changeup all look the same coming out of his hand. And that's the main goal when you're changing eye levels. And I think we joked a little bit about early on in the season, maybe way back in the spring actually, about which young starting pitcher we were expecting to step up some. And I think that you had said Tuki Toussaint's the guy. I had said I think Mike Soroka will be the guy. Well, now we're going to get a chance to see both of them in rotation just based on the early season turnover the Braves have had with Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson going back to AAA. And now Sean Newcomb has joined them in AAA. Mike Fultonevich right around the corner. He'll be activated before too long. That, of course, will be big for the Braves to get their number one starter back. We talked about it last week. One more rehab start for him before that happens. But I, I guess... 
in some ways not surprising to see Sean Newcomb be demoted to AAA just based on his last performance. Uh, Braves went out and staked him to a four-run lead. All of a sudden, those four runs disappeared. Braves able to slug their way to a victory on that night, but they were winning in spite of the starting performance they got and not because of it. So I, I guess we'll start with, before we get to the young arms, Sean Newcomb, I don't think I'm seeing the same guy that we saw last year. And that may seem like a pretty obvious statement because I know that down the stretch he really kind of faltered. But that guy that we saw for the first, what, 17, 18 starts last year that really had conviction in his changeup, that really seemed to be around the strike zone enough to get swings and misses outside the zone, that guy just doesn't seem to be there. You mentioned attacking and what's worked so well for Max Fried. I would say the opposite is what's keeping Sean Newcomb from really realizing his potential and doing the kind of things he did at times last year. What's your read on Sean Newcomb and his early struggles? Well, he's got to figure something out for sure. And I don't know really exactly where he needs to go with this because we talk about attacking the zone. He wants to attack the zone with first pitch strikes. He wants to get ahead of guys. Well, last time out, he went one and a third and gave up the four earned, but he was getting ahead of guys. He couldn't finish anybody off. And the quality of pitches later in the at-bats, wasn't good. So he's making mistakes later in the at-bats where they're over the middle of the plate. He's not consistently throwing the ball where he wants to throw it. Uh, the curveball is super inconsistent. That's been inconsistent for a year plus now. Uh, the changeup can be good at times, but it's clearly not uh, a wipeout changeup because he just started throwing it really last year and then started to develop it. Well, if his mechanics are off and his consistency is off with his release point, the changeup's never going to be consistent either. Just the same thing as the curveball. Um, so he's got he's got to go back to the drawing board. I, I think that he's got to simplify something. He's to me, when I look at Sean Newcomb, and I and obviously I'm not a pitching coach, so this is just just me watching and, and mm-hmm. observing. And the way I the way I think about baseball and try to teach baseball is uh, try to simplify things. And if it makes sense, it's probably going to work. So when I look at Sean Newcomb. He's got a long arm swing, and I feel like it just he's a big kid. He's like 6'5", so when he has that long arm swing, Soroka, you could say the same thing about him too, and it worries me a little bit about a Soroka as well, uh, just with command. When they have the long arm swing, a lot of times they can't get their arm up quick enough, so they can't get the release point out front, and all of a sudden things start to drag. Well, if a changeup drag, it's going drag to hang. If a curveball drags, it's going to float uh, up in the zone. A fastball is going to miss arm side. So then they overcorrect and try to get it to the glove side, and it's hard as well. So they'll choke some that way. I would love to see him. I don't know. This is just completely me suggesting this. I have no idea if they're talking about this or not. I would love to see him shorten that arm swing up to make it a little bit quicker and simplify his delivery a little bit to gain a little bit more consistency because his biggest problem is consistency. Oh, yeah. Um, And and that's – the stuff he throws hard, he's, he has the makings of a really good curveball and a really good changeup, but he can't consistently repeat his delivery. So I would look at the delivery and try to shorten some things up and simplify things. And there's something that he's going to have to do, I think, is find some answers, whether it's mechanically in specific or whether it's you know, mentally just coming up with that game plan and that execution and then going out there and, uh, again, I guess having the conviction and the belief that you can execute that game plan, and it's interesting that you brought up you know, Mike Soroka in particular because mechanically speaking, I don't think that other than the shoulder thing that makes you wonder if everything is you know, mechanically where it needs to be or not, but that aside, if he's put that you know, behind him, 
if I look at Mike Soroka, I think the biggest difference is not necessarily physically with if you look at that arm swing, but mentally Mike Soroka seems to be a guy that just seems to have a next level grasp of not necessarily yes. overcorrecting and getting outside of himself and really reaching for answers and he really stays inside his own mind so well and that's something that I don't know that you can teach that maybe you're just born with it or you're not but that I think is really one of the separating factors for Mike Soroka it's not that he throws 100 miles an hour it's not that he has the best this pitch or that pitch he is just good across the board at seemingly everything he does in terms of how he executes and that I think is what makes him a guy that you can really look at long term and buy into because He's got the stuff, he's got the pitch ability, and he's got the mentality. And I'm not sure that all of those boxes have been checked for Sean Newcomb, and the results are really kind of telling the story there. If you look at the two of them, and you made a great point, if you compare their their mental makeup, Sean Newcomb's a guy that I, I think I said this last week, I want to see a little fire in Sean Newcomb. Sure. I don't see that fire. I see the fire in, in Mike Soroka, even though he's calm and collective. He, he still has that fire to me that he's going to go after guys. He, he gets angry. He wants to make the pitch. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference. These guys have good stuff. And the bullpen, we'll talk about that later too. They've got good stuff as well. But you've got to have all this put together to make it all work. And I, I think that Mike Soroka is one of those guys that as long as he's healthy, he's going to continue to get better and continue to learn how to be more consistent. Because when you look at Soroka, he can throw some really good sliders. Mm-hmm. And they can throw some hanging sliders. He can throw some really good sinkers, and he can he can run one like all over the place. Uh, so his gloves, Soroka's glove side to me, he, it's with that arm swing. It's like that long arm swing. Sometimes it's harder for him to hit that glove side with the movement that he wants. If he can get the arm up on time and get the release point where it needs to be, he's nasty. He can go to the outside corner to righties and have that little sink, that dive down sink that they can't hit. His stuff is really good. He's got a good changeup too. So. I'm just happy that he's healthy because we expected him to come to spring training and compete for that fifth starter spot. And then as soon as he gets down there, we, we hear about the shoulder. He's not healthy. Uh, it doesn't feel right. And you sit there and wonder when he's going to be able to make it back. Well, he made it back yesterday and he looked pretty good. Um, I'd say that they are, they had to be thrilled with what he was able to do. Yeah. Five innings of one run ball for Mike Soroka. He had a couple of hit batsmen, Um, not too much in terms of anything I would say I didn't expect from a guy that hasn't made a start since last June. Unfortunately, Braves offense not able to back him up, but very encouraging to see what he was able to do over that five-inning stint. And this really comes, you know, not too far off of the Tuki Toussaint return to Atlanta. You thought, well, maybe he'll come up and help out the bullpen. Well, he did. He threw six innings in relief and looked very good. And in fact, he's earned himself a spot in the Atlanta Braves rotation because of Sean Newcomb's absence. At this point, being demoted down to AAA, we'll see how all this shakes out when Mike Fultonevich comes back, but that's still obviously a few days away from happening at the soonest. Tuki Toussaint, Mike Soroka, guys that join Julio Tehran and Kevin Gosman and Max Fried in this rotation. Right now, you have to really like what you've got every fifth day and Fultonevich on the way back. Looking deeper into the numbers for the Braves pitching staff, rotation ERA is just over four. They've had a couple of clunkers. That's going to happen to each and every starting rotation, each and every pitcher all year long. Bullpen, though, to make a segue to something that's probably not going to be as fun to talk about, ERA, thanks to a disastrous homestand, particularly some rough nights against Arizona, has ballooned back up to over five. It's one of the highest ERAs in the National League amongst bullpens. 40 walks now 
in 66 and two-thirds innings. That's the fourth most in Major League Baseball, second to the Cardinals in the National League. The difference is the Cardinals' bullpen's not getting hit. They are putting on some free runners, but they're not giving up the hits that are allowing opponents to cash in. Problem for the Braves' bullpen has been that not only are the free base runners getting out there, but big hits are happening for the opposing club as well. We've seen serious struggles from Chad Sabatka's last few times out. Jesse Biddle is having a lot of trouble throwing strikes. And A.J. Minter has not looked as sharp as he can when he's on. You're already missing Darren O'Day. There's not a timetable on him. And to make matters worse, you've now lost Erodis Vizcaino for the season as he had shoulder surgery this week. And that drastically changes the dynamic of this bullpen. It's been a complete mess. Um, the relievers in charge, though, of getting to those final outs, they've been extremely shaky. Nick, what do you make of this group? What's going to have to happen? I know Tom Glavin on the broadcast, the TV broadcast a couple of days ago, said guys are going to have to pitch up to their capabilities. Is it as simple as that, or does Alex Antopoulos need to be burning up the phone and have as many opposing teams or agents on speed dial to get some reinforcements in here and help this group out? I think Glavin's right. I mean, obviously you want to try to improve the bullpen which, however you can, whether it's internally or externally, you want to improve them. They obviously need some uh, some help somewhere along the line. But right now, it's all about guys stepping up and doing their job. And you can't replace the entire bullpen. There, there's no way to do that. If, right. if they get two guys, it'll be a miracle. You know what I'm saying? So uh, you you have to get the Dan Winklers to step up. You have to get Biddle fixed. You have to get Sabaka fixed. Uh, Viz is obviously out for the year. Johnny Venters has to be better when he comes back. Right. So – are we going to see some minor league guys or young guys that are starters in pushed into bullpen roles? Probably so. And I've talked about this before, and I think last week as well, is if whatever Alex has to do to put the best guys out in the bullpen, he's going to have to do. This team's trying to compete. It's not like they're trying to develop. They're trying to compete right now. So it's frustrating. And the bullpen actually had pitched well up until that Arizona series. They, they looked pretty good. And then that Arizona series was just awful. Seven earned in three innings in game one. Biddle had the, the rough night, the three walks, the throwing error in game two. And then Sabaka gave up uh, three runs and two-thirds in game three. So when you're looking at who is supposed to be a high-leverage arm in that bullpen, I just mentioned two of those guys, and that's Jesse Biddle and Chad Sabaka. Mm-hmm. And they're not getting the job done. So now with Viz out and Minter's been inconsistent, it's almost like where do you go to get the outs? Luke Jackson can't pitch every day. Wes Parsons can't pitch every day. Um, and so you're getting good starting pitching, and then you don't have the guys performing up to their capabilities to finish off the game. So it's frustrating. I get it. I know Snickers frustrated. Uh, you've got to weather the ship somehow. And Anthopolis, it might be time for him to, to really get on the phones and see what he can do, uh, what guys are available, uh, who's out there. I know they're going to say Craig Kimbrell, bring him out or uh, bring him in. Um, and, yeah, I would I would like to see where he's at for sure. I think he'd make a difference. At least it would solidify one of the spots. And then you go from there. But ultimately, guys just have to step up and pitch up to the capabilities. Yeah, there's no two ways around that. I mean, the, the disappointment is that injuries and inconsistency have created a, I, I want to say, not a perfect storm because there's nothing about this that's been perfect for the late innings or middle innings, for that matter, for the Braves. But you do look at the possibility of bringing some other guys in. But the real question becomes, beyond the Craig Kimbrell 
signing that everyone would love to see who exactly are you going to go out there and get. And there just aren't many, if any, guys that you can look around and say, this is a guy that would come in and make things better. And I, I made this argument on social media because it's an argument that we're having a lot. And I think that some of it is just born out of the complete and total frustration of looking at last year's bullpen and realizing, all right, this is a group that has some talent, but they definitely need some help. And they we definitely need to reinforce this group. And then proceeding to not sign any free agents of any level, major league free agents, I should say, or make any kind of real quantifiable trade that made your bullpen better than it was a year ago. Now, again, I'll sit there and tell you, I do think that there are some talented relievers out there. But as you just pointed out, when some of these guys are struggling and some of these guys aren't getting the job done and then the injuries happen, all of a sudden, if the depth is not there, you're running into exactly what the Braves have right now. And you can be as frustrated as you want to, justifiably or not, about who Brian Snitker is calling upon in some of these situations and how many chances these guys are being given. But the question has become exacerbated over the last few games or really uh, from the opening of the season on is who else are you going to call on? What else are you going to do? And that's the answer that the Braves are searching for. The question or questions, plural, that they're going to have to answer sooner than later because I don't think that the second or third week of April, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but I don't think this is a time frame where most teams are looking to offload healthy and capable relievers to other clubs, really, <laughs> no matter what the reasoning is. Absolutely not. Why, why would I want to get rid of somebody right now unless, the, unless I can get something huge in return? Because right now, you're seeing all kinds of teams competing you'd expect to compete. So where do the Braves go as far as who's available and who's not? I, it's just hard to say right now. And then you're not really wanting to sign – guys that, that are free agents because they haven't been pitching. Uh, you never know what's going to happen there. We've seen that in the past year or so. Guys signing late and they struggle. So do you really want to go there and try that? I don't think so. So I think you just have to weather the storm for the most part and see what's out there. I know Alex is, is all over the phones trying to figure out who he could possibly get. Um, I'm sure he's had conversations in the past too, so it's not like he just all of a sudden just calling teams who's available. Uh, but you have to do something. You've got to at least exhaust all your options. And um, guys are going to get opportunities. Bryce Wilson's a guy that I'd like to see in the bullpen, see what he can do. Um, and once Fulton Evans gets back now, you never know. You, you used to add a little bit more depth here and there. But I think the Viz injury really hurts this team. Absolutely. And I know people are getting frustrated with Viz, and he's kind of a heart attack closer at times. But he's a, he's a big league closer, and that makes a big difference when you don't have that guy even if he couldn't pitch back-to-back days, at least you knew he was out there and available every other day or so. Uh, so it, it's tough, and people can get on Snit and his use, usage of the bullpen, but ultimately, where do you go if the guys aren't performing or guys are hurt? It's just a tough call. Yeah, it's an extremely tough call, and, and that at some point you've got to figure out you know, what your answers are going to be and who exactly you can rely on. And unfortunately for right now, they really haven't had any – anyone really step up and grab the reins outside of I would say Wes Parsons and he's a guy that coming into spring training was kind of an unheralded prospect in terms of he had been very solid throughout his minor league career but when you started stacking up all the Braves starting pitching prospects which is what he was in the minors that's not a name that you looked at and thought well this clearly we've got to find a job for this guy but clearly you know he's managed to show exactly how valuable he is to this bullpen but 
you're going to need more than that. And strangely enough, and I think we touched on this a little bit last week, since giving up that grand slam on opening day, Luke Jackson has turned into one of your better, if not your best reliever in terms of the actual results. And I know he came into a situation, what with the bases loaded a couple of nights ago against Arizona, that's not really a situation where you're putting a guy in there and giving him much room for error, much margin for error. You're probably going to give up a run in that particular scenario. And he did, but Overall, Luke Jackson's managed to find some answers. Very few other Braves relievers have been able to find the answers or the consistency that they need. But for Brian Snitker, I don't know exactly what you do on some nights. I mean, you try to find those best matchups, but if in some way, shape, or form, the answer is getting your starters deeper into the game, well, that's something that started to happen as late of well. You've been getting six and seven innings routinely from your starters. You know, save Soroka's five innings, which I think were for a purpose, just based on him coming back from injury. But I guess there's got to be a, a, a balance or a happy medium between getting enough out of your starters and not asking your bullpen to be getting 12 and more outs per night because I just don't think you can keep that pace up over the course of 162, and I think the results for many clubs are bearing that out. You, If you ask them to, to get that many outs, you've got to have a deep bullpen. Yes, you do. You've got to have four or five guys that you really trust. And a lot of teams I was on – uh, that were winning, we had three guys in the bullpen, four guys that they leaned on all the time. The other guys kind of filled in, and then you had guys up and down and whatever. But if you you have to at least have four guys that you could trust and you believe in. And when you look at the Braves bullpen, they don't really have hardly anybody other than Luke Jackson right now and, and Wes Parsons. Josh Thomas done a nice job, but Josh Thomas not a, a back end of the game type of guy. Right. Josh Thomas a, a long reliever guy so where did where where do you go aj mentor's given up five earned runs in five and two-thirds innings so i don't know it, it's just tough you, you've got to you've got to just have guys step up as the bottom line and you can hear snit talk about this all day long guys have the stuff if they didn't have the stuff they wouldn't have made it to the big leagues these guys these guys if, if they're right they could be as good as any bullpen out there for the most part i mean you're gonna have bigger names that are obviously have a better track record and all that stuff. But if you, if these guys pitch to their potential, you could have a really good bullpen. So you've got to have guys step up and uh, kind of at least take some sort of control out there. And when their name's called, you can believe in them because right now it's almost like you don't believe in them. You get somebody gives the, gives the Braves like Gosman gives seven innings. And then you sit there and go, can they even cover the last two? If it's a close game. And that's not where you want to be. Um, you want to be able to trust these guys. And I think once they weather this storm and kind of figure things out, some guys get healthy, They uh, some other guys step up, I think they'll be fine. But I think also that Alex Anthopoulos will try to make at least one move, possibly two moves. Uh, and I think that would be a good idea as well. No, it certainly would be. So let's ask this question that we've asked multiple times since this podcast began um, a number of months ago. Craig Kimbrell is still a free agent. The Braves have now lost at least one of their co-closers for the remainder of the season. Attached to Craig Kimbrell, in addition to whatever demands he has for a multi-year contract, I'm assuming that has not changed much. Um, the price tag may have, but the multi-year component of that, I don't think he's you know looking to sign a one-year deal or a rest-of-the-season type deal, though that could change as well. Attached to him as well is the compensatory draft pick that the Braves would have to lose, which would be their third overall pick and would be 
I believe about a million to a million and a half dollars, depending on how that whole thing breaks down. Maybe it's 1.1 million either way. Braves have already lost a draft pick as part of their sanctions from Major League Baseball um, a couple of years ago. So Atlanta has two first-round picks. They're going to need that money to sign these picks. That, I think, is a consideration for not just the Braves, but a lot of different clubs. But I think that may be one of, if not the biggest deterrents to going out and signing Craig Kimbrell right now is the fact that not only are you going to have to come to terms on whatever the contract is for length and annual value or whatever, what have you, but also the fact that you could really torpedo your draft and your spending because of the draft pool that has been in place for a few years now. It's just a really odd situation, I think, to be in because in a vacuum, I think you'd want to do anything you could to get Craig Kimbrell in within reason, you know, not talking about a gross overpay, but what do you do right now if you're Alex Anthopoulos? Do you think, Nick, that this changes his perception whatsoever, or do you think that he's looked at the value and the risk versus the reward of going multiple years with a closer over 30, no matter how good he's been? We saw in the second half of last year as well, Craig Kimbrell is human as well. So I don't know. Is it the fact that people want to see anything happen in order to – kind of change the perception of not doing enough or not doing anything over the off season. What's, what's your read on all of that and kind of the reaction that comes from it? I think everybody wants something to happen. I mean, I, I would like something to happen too. And it does get frustrating at times, especially if you're a, a big time Braves fan and you see your team struggling, you don't want to, to see the team struggle when you know they're supposedly that they have the money to, to make things happen. Yeah. When I look at the Craig, Craig Kimbrell deal, I look at the fact that one is Alex Anthopoulos said they're not afraid to lose a draft pick. Well, I, I believe that to an extent. Um, but also when you look at Alex and how he's been methodical with his deals, the deal has to make sense. So I think there are other factors involved. I don't think that the draft pick is what's holding them back. Uh, I think the performance of Kimbrel last year, the second half, I think the, his age, the number of years that he wants, the number of money, the amount of money that he wants, um, I think all that factors in. And if Craig Kimbrell was, was willing to accept a two-year deal, I think maybe Alex goes out and tries to get it done. But if he wants four, three to five years or whatever, that's not really Alex's comfort zone right now, based on performance and everything else. So I think there are just a lot of factors involved in this. And I've said this before: it's so easy to spend other people's money. We could sit here all day long and say, hey, the Braves should go get this guy. The Braves should do this. doesn't matter how much it costs. Well, when you're, when you're a GM, you've got guidelines and restrictions based upon what the ownership has, has led you to believe that you can and can't do. So Alex is working under, uh, I don't want to say a microscope, but kind of as far as what he can and can't do, what his plans are down the road. Does he want to add after the All-Star break? Does he want to add next year? You have all these factors that go into this, and I know that Craig Kimbrell would be a big deal that would make a difference in this bullpen. But again, Craig Kimbrell is not the, the solution to all that is wrong with the Braves' bullpen. You still have to add some more pieces or guys have to step up for one. If, say, for instance, everybody's pitching up their capabilities, then you lose Vizcaino, and now you're saying, okay, well, everybody's pitching really well. Kimbrell could take us over the, the, that next step, take us to the next step, and he could be a huge piece because everybody's doing their job performing. Then you might look at it and say, okay, now he might be worth four years. Right. Uh, but 
you know, there's, there's just a lot of factors involved in this. And I know sitting back in the, in your recliner and watching this Braves team and yelling at the TV, yelling at Alex for not doing anything is pretty easy to do. Uh, but you have to put yourself in his shoes too. And he's trying to make the best moves for this club, not just this year, but long-term as well. Yeah. And there's a frustration that comes with the fact of knowing that the Braves have a lower payroll right now than they had a year ago. And we're talking about a team that went from a surprise in terms of winning the national league East to a team that's expected to contend in what I believe will be one of the most hard fought division races in baseball, because I think there's going to be four teams in that mix. And that's just, it's going to be a lot of fun, but it's not going to be a lot of fun. If you lose games and you see a lot of games slip through your fingers that you feel like you could have won. Now the certain amount of those is going to happen all year long anyway. But I think when you compound the wondering about the spending and, and why it didn't happen over the winter and when it is going to happen during the season and to what extent, then you throw out the fact that, you know, Craig Kimbrell, not only is he statistically one of the greatest closers of all time, but quite obviously people are very fond of him around here because they remember exactly what he was when he was with the Braves before. And whatever Craig Kimbrell is right now, rolling out of bed, warming up, and then going into a game may actually be better than some of the situations the Braves bullpen has found itself in over the first couple of weeks. And that's not knocking all those guys. It's just saying that Craig Kimbrell is that good. Looking back through the numbers, just in case you're curious about this, Craig Kimbrell's second half last year, his ERA was over four and a half. That's after the All-Star break. 22 appearances there. He was sub two in the first 41 appearances of the year, but he also ran into so much trouble in the postseason that the Red Sox were a little bit, I think, gun-shy about using him in some of those higher leverage situations, and I think that's one of the reasons you saw Chris Sale come out and close. Yeah, I think about the Red Sox in – how much money do they have? They have basically unlimited money. It, they didn't even try to go sign it. No, they didn't even attempt it. So that, t- that tells you something right there. Yeah, I'm not sure what exactly the Red Sox were thinking in terms of their overall strategy there, but they're very clearly, they weren't interested in going five years and $100 million or six years and 120 or whatever it was that he was asking for. So I think in, in it's twofold. And to bring it back to the Braves, but just to kind of you know stick a pin in the Craig Kimbrell talks, He asked for, I think, it may have priced himself out of the market. Now, a little while ago, not too long ago, really, if he had been a free agent, he would have gotten that monster deal that Aroldis Chapman got, that monster deal that Kenley Jansen got. Now, the Wade Davis deal, which is actually more per year, might have been a little bit more realistic. I think if he was walking around looking for three and 51, that there's a chance that Craig Kimbrell signs somewhere. And I'm not saying that he should lower his asking price simply to sign a contract because I'm sure we could spend a you lot of time arguing about that. Instead of saying we want hundred and something million dollars, they could have said we're looking for something at least at least four years or three years and then let people start to bid because right. then it, it puts a lot more teams into the mix. When you price teams out of the mix right out of the gate, why do they even come back? Because they, they already expect the price to be too high anyway. So I just think that was a, not a good thing for them to do at the beginning of the winter. I know he wanted that deal that Jansen got, but at the same time, you have to understand the market. And I don't think that I think they overplayed their hand a little bit. And now he's just sitting at home and he's one of the best closers ever. And he's sitting at home. Yeah. And it's 30 teams that have allowed him to sit at home. It's not just one club. It's not just the Braves failure to sign Craig Kimbrell while he would help them. There's no two ways about that. I don't think anybody's arguing against that. And to kind of go back to the the whole original point, the frustration of Braves fans is warranted when you look at the fact that the team is losing some games 
specifically because of the bullpen, and it was something that was not addressed. Now, I don't go down the rabbit hole of saying, well, they just shouldn't have signed Josh Donaldson and should have spent $23 million on the bullpen. That's You're welcome to say that, but I don't think if you take away Josh Donaldson and the $23 million he's owed, I don't think that's a difference in having Craig Kimbrell in a Braves uniform. I think there are reasons why yeah. that long-term contract was not signed, and I think that Josh Donaldson signing in is a completely separate line on that spreadsheet. The Braves still have money to spend. Why they didn't spend it on some of the lower-level relievers who were out there, I don't know. They must have felt like they had the depth built in there and some of the young pitchers that were going to be able to help out, but I don't know the answer to that question. It's been asked time and time again, and clearly the Braves believed in some level in the group that they had to start with, and that group has underperformed and or gotten hurt because no Darren O'Day and the loss of Arodis Vizcaino was not part of the Braves' plans for how they were going to manage their bullpen in 2019. And now they're really going to have to figure out ways to get creative. And, you know, we're not even, what, three weeks through April right now. And they're already going to have to answer some very, very big questions. And I'm not sure where you go to find all those answers, Nick. I'm not either. And I'm glad that I'm not the one in charge of it because I, I you've got to – Ultimately, I mean, they believe in their roster. If they didn't believe in the roster, they would have made something happen. And I know there's money out there. I don't know how much there is to spend, but Alex would have spent it if he felt like he needed to spend it, if he didn't trust these guys. And he mentioned this the other day, too. Uh, he was on the the radio or interview about guys that he expected to perform well this year. And Sam, he mentioned Sam Freeman. When, when you see what Sam Freeman did at the end of last year, you thought Sam Freeman was going to be a part of this bullpen. And then spring training didn't work out. So there's one other guy that's not even here they expected to be a part of the bullpen as well. And then you had the injuries and the underperformance of different guys, and now you've got what you have now. Yeah, and, and like I said earlier, perfect storm is not what I mean when I say, you know, it's certainly not a great thing. Obviously, it is a storm, and there's nothing perfect about it. And the whole thing is just really compounded upon itself. But – the Braves are going to have to have some guys in-house step up, most certainly, until they can get some help from the outside, whether that help is named Craig Kimbrell or or goes by some other name and is part of some kind of trade. But long story short, the bullpen frustration certainly noted by anyone that is a Braves fan, certainly noticed by the media, and certainly noticed by the executives who run the Atlanta Braves in the front office, Alex Anthopoulos included, and, of course, down in the dugout for Brian Snitker. You know, he's doing something that, Nick, and I, I want to touch on this before we move on from it, but from the human element standpoint of this, for Brian Snitker, I mean, he wants to give these guys the opportunities to succeed. And I think that that was kind of apparent with the way that they worked with Jesse Biddle this past week. Jesse having some control problems, no doubt about it. He said something I thought was interesting in that, you know, he made a promise that that wasn't going to happen again. I don't know if in that line of work he can really make that promise because baseball is a humbling game. But Brian Snitker did give him the opportunity the next night to come back out and pitch again. Now, while that didn't work out, I do think that that is one of the things that does make Brian Snitker respected uh, in that clubhouse and beyond is the fact that he does manage these people as much as he's managing the player and as much as he's just looking at the stats. He's got a belief in the person that is that player that you see go out there and perform. And I think that that's invaluable. I mean, it may not be the difference in winning and losing every single night, but I think over the course of a long season, it's certainly a dynamic of helping build a winning culture. What do you think? No, I, I do too. And when I know the Jesse Biddle comments hit people the wrong way, he said it's not going to happen again. Well, you can't you can't control everything. But I like the attitude. I know that he wants to go out there and pitch. And 
for Stitt to send him back out there the next day, I think says a lot because as a as a player, I can't tell you how defeating it is to go up and say I went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow I'm out of the lineup. The next day I'm out of the lineup. The next day I'm out of the lineup. And it's like, okay, well, the next time I get in, I've got to perform. Otherwise, I'm never going to get to play again. And the same thing goes through the bullpen uh, minds as well. Sending him back out there says, I believe in you and I trust you, even though it didn't work out. It says a lot for Brian Snicker and how he manages his club. And it's not all about the X's and O's. You have to manage egos. You have to manage players. And they're humans. You've got to deal with them emotionally and also physically. They have to be able to perform from a physical standpoint as well. But when you do something that helps create less confidence in the player, they're not going to perform as well. Right. And that's one of the great attributes of Brian Sticker. He's going to be honest with you. He's going to tell you the truth. And he's going to back you up. And that, to me, is the best way to approach this. I know it doesn't always work out, but, uh, I mean – I applaud Snit for, for sending Biddle back out there, even though it didn't work out. Yeah, and I think that as the Braves are currently constructed, and if you go back and look at the numbers last year, yeah, you can look at that walk column for a lot of guys and say, need to get that down to a more controlled rate. But Jesse Biddle, I think, has the potential and the talent, obviously, that he showed last year to be a contributor to the eight men in that bullpen. Pitching in high leverage situations in the late innings may or may not be something that he grows into, but I, I think that there's a lot to be said of, again, managing the people and the aspect of which you have to do that a lot of times just goes lost when you're looking at solely the results and solely the numbers. And Brian Snitker does as good a job of that as just about anybody that's in the game right now. And I don't think it's a mistake for where he learned it from one of the best all-time at doing that in Bobby Cox. So a lot of things going on with the Braves. A 500 start to the season through 18 games. A road trip to face the first-place Cleveland Indians that begins on Friday That'll be a big test for them as they are going to face some of the better starting pitchers in the American League as they head out there. Speaking of which, elsewhere around the big leagues, we can celebrate because Chris Davis finally broke his O for Nick. We talked him right out of it last week. We put that podcast out, and then it was three hits against the Red Sox. A couple days later, he hit a home run, and he's even picking up hits this week as well. Just, I think, great to see him finally get through that and hopefully a sign that maybe he can get his career turned around. I know you were excited to see it as well. I was, and to see him pick up – he's got five hits on the air. To see him pick up five hits in the last uh, four games is huge. And it's huge for his confidence because I was actually talking to somebody about this at the field the other day. He still has to go out there and look at that 109 batting average every time he goes up. So it's not go, that part's not going away. Uh, but to see him hit some balls hard uh, to get some hits, it just – it's refreshing, and he deserves it. Hopefully he can get things turned around. Um, I, I said last week, I think he's got to make some mechanical adjustments. I still believe that the way guys are pitching now, but to see him, especially get that, that first home run out of the way, I think was huge uh, because he had been hitting a bunch of balls to the, to the warning track and got, and balls just weren't going out. So to see him get the home run was huge. Uh, and I'm just happy that he's on the board now and he's done well over the last four games. Yeah, we'll continue to monitor how that Chris Davis is doing. Meanwhile, the other Chris Davis out on the left coast, he's doing pretty well for himself. That, of course, the Oakland Athletics designated hitter slash outfielder Chris Davis, who is leading the American League, and I think leading baseball with 10 home runs. I believe Cody Bellinger joined him on Thursday night as well, but led the American League with 48 home runs last year. And Chris Davis, a model of consistency, Nick. I don't know if you knew this coming into this year, and I don't know if this factored into his two-year Thirty-three and a half million dollar extension that he's agreed to with Oakland, but 
In 2015, he hit 247. In 2016, he hit 247. In 2017, he hit 247. In 2018, he hit 247. He's batting 260 this year, so he's really overachieving in that department. But, you know, <laughs> all jokes aside, I mean, this is a guy who's turned into one of the premier sluggers in the American League and three consecutive 40 home run seasons, I think a little bit more uh, to the point of what his talents are. And Oakland, as he's on the way to another one, it looks like this year with 10 home runs through 20 games, they're pretty happy about having that kind of slugger in the middle of their lineup for another couple of years. And I don't think Chris Davis wanted to go out on the free agent market at 32, 33 years old either. No, and when you look at where he plays, Oakland's not the best hitter's ballpark anyway. Right. And he puts up numbers every single year. At least you know what you're getting. Maybe he's not going to be the guy who hits 275 or 280, but that's okay. He's he's doing damage. Uh, he's off to a great start this year. Hitting 40 homers in each of the last three years is a big deal. Home runs have been down as far as the 40 home run mark is concerned over the years. When when I was still playing, 40 home runs was like 30 guys. or It was crazy. I don't even know the numbers. But it just felt like 40 wasn't that big of a deal. 50 was a huge deal. Right now, 40 home runs is a big deal. And he's done that three straight years. He's going to do it again this year as long as he's, he stays healthy. But you know what you got in Chris Davis, and it's good for him. I'm glad that he didn't go on the free agent market. Uh, I think he he deserved this extension, and the A's appreciate what he's given them and what he's going to continue to give them. Yeah, he's certainly a guy that provides that power and consistency, at least in terms of you know what you're going to get, as you just pointed out. He's going to be a guy that will give you exactly what he's capable of, it seems, each and every year, and what it looks like is hitting around 250, just below, with 40-plus homers and driving in 100 runs. And you got to be pretty happy with that because – you need, I think, that, that that one big hitter, that one big home run threat to make a big difference in your lineup. And you, know, you mentioned the 40 home run hitters are a lot harder to see. Now I think we just see a lot more guys hitting 20 and 25 home runs per That's year right. than we a used to see. A lot of guys doing that now. And so now when you see somebody hit 40, I think it it's starting to move back towards that mark that it was you know, pre the home run chase at 98 and before the 90s where when somebody had 40 home runs, that was a pretty big deal. I mean, they were one of the premier sluggers in the league, and that I think it started to be a trend that's moved back a little bit towards that direction. Meanwhile, if you look across the standings in Major League Baseball, not a ton of surprises, but one in the American League East, it's twofold, is number one, as we talk about every week, and we'll continue to until they give us a reason not to, Tampa Bay Rays, best record in baseball right now after three weeks. That, Admittedly, small sample size, but they're playing great baseball if you watch them. It's no surprise to see that they're winning as a team almost night in and night out. But equally surprising to me, Nick, is the fact the Red Sox still have the worst record in the American League. I don't know when you hit that panic button again, as we talked about with the Braves, not time to after three weeks. But for the Red Sox, it's a pretty rough start after winning a ton of games and a World Series in 2018. They got to be wondering when they're going to get going, don't they? How hard is it to repeat? That's true. That's what they always say. It's so hard to repeat, but... At the same time, this club was not expected to do this, and I don't think they're going to continue to uh, perform down to this level. I think they're going to get better. Uh, but again, when you, you compare them to the Braves, for instance, guys have to step up and do their job. Guys aren't doing their job. It's When you look at the, the runs allowed, they've allowed 119 runs, only scored 77. Mookie Betts has struggled a little bit this year. The, the offense is not where it was last year. Obviously, the pitching is the biggest problem. But you, you, th- their roster is too good. Their roster is way too good to perform like they're performing. I'm, it's early, and I'm not really that concerned about it right now. 
I think they'll turn it around. Who, who knows? They might go uh, next month and win 20 games. You know, we don't right. know. That's true. So I, I just feel like that it's just too early to be that concerned about them, although there are some concerning factors as far as the, the pitching is concerned, the rotation, and guys aren't swinging the bats uh, like they're capable of. So they're, they're, they're concerns for sure, but I think that they're going to get things turned around at some point. And they certainly have the time to get that done. There's no two ways about that. Again, the Rays are the only over 500 club in the American League East. I don't expect that to be the case when the year's over. Of course, you got the Yankees and the Red Sox both with adequate time to make up ground and make that quite the race. I mean, Baltimore and Toronto, I think we know both those teams are going to have some growing pains this year as they kind of figure out where their future is headed. In the American League Central, it is right now the Cleveland Indians heading into the weekend who have the uh, one-game lead over the Minnesota Twins, who have been a pretty good ball club thus far this year. Detroit Tigers playing 500 ball. Out in the West, I don't think it was too surprising to see the Astros reel off a streak where they won nine in a row, nine out of ten, and took over the top spot. But the Seattle Mariners have been slugging the baseball like no other team. They're hanging around, but it does feel like once Oakland gets going and once Houston gets going, those are the two teams that are going to be pretty tough to beat. National League East right now, heading into the weekend, belongs to the Phillies by one game over the Mets. Nationals are in third place. Braves in fourth place, just two games behind the front-running Phillies, though. In the central, Pittsburgh and Milwaukee are in a virtual tie at the top of the standing. St. Louis one game out. The Cubs now creeping back towards 500, two and a half games out. And in the west, it's been Dodgers. Uh, the Dodgers have been the story of late. It was San Diego the first couple of weeks. Dodgers have won five in a row. They just got Clayton Kershaw back as well, so they head into the weekend with a one-and-a-half game lead over the Padres. So anything uh, jump out as you look through the early standings, Nick, or anybody that you're expecting to maybe start to make their their presence known, if you will, as we close out the month of April and head towards May? I think Pittsburgh's interesting. I don't know if they can hold that up. Uh, Milwaukee's going to – I think Milwaukee's going to get better. Dodgers, not surprising at all. You know what? One thing is is surprising is, is San Diego. They're 11-9. and nine. And, and we talked about this with Manny Machado signing over there. Oh, they're not going to compete. And I still don't know if they're really going to have a legit chance to compete for a couple of years. But these guys have gotten off to a great start. And they have a great farm system. They have a lot of young talent that's performing. Uh, so you'll see how they, they move on through the season. But they've gotten off to a good start as well. They certainly have. And one other interesting thing I'll say as far as Pittsburgh, I know you pointed them out. The fact is they're winning based on their pitching. Only one team in the National League has scored fewer runs than the Pittsburgh Pirates this year. It's the Miami Marlins, who are 11 games under 500 three weeks into the season. That says a lot about the kind of pitching that Pittsburgh's getting, including uh, Joe Musgrove's looked great. Chris Archer certainly pitching extremely well. And they've got a few other guys in that rotation and in that bullpen as well that have been very good for them in the early going. So that's what's happening around the big leagues as we wrap up this episode of from the diamond we invite you to subscribe to the podcast on itunes google play spotify soundcloud and stitcher ratings and reviews always appreciated on twitter at from the diamond underscore i am at grant mccauley and nick is at nick green 20 from the diamond.com you'll find all the episodes and all the other content we'll be bringing you throughout the rest of the season so the braves have themselves a little road trip nick i think that gives us a little bit of a reprieve in terms of running back and forth from the ballpark, but it would be good to see the Braves uh, make their presence known, if you will, against a first-place team that they're going to be facing this weekend. Do you have any keys to that series or any thoughts as we wrap up this episode? Well, Cleveland hasn't swung the bats well at all this year. You don't want to give them a reason uh, to get going, so they're going to have to pitch better. The Braves' offense has, has struggled with runners in scoring position over the last week or so, 
I think that's going to be big too. And they're going to face a tough uh, pitching staff from Cleveland. So I don't know. It just all has to come together. The best part about this is they're leaving SunTrust, kind of wash themselves rid of that homestand and kind of start anew. They had the off day yesterday. I think that was going to be big for them as well. Yep, it should be an interesting series for sure. First place Indians and the Braves, who are only two games out of first place and looking to put that sweep at the hands of the Diamondbacks behind them as quickly as possible. That's what's happening for the Atlanta Braves. That's what's happening across baseball. Nick enjoyed it and look forward to doing it again next week. Absolutely. All right, for Nick Green, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond, and we will catch you next week. So long, everyone.